welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we play It's a Cop Out. But firstly, an apology for this episode coming out so much later than I had planned. Our podcasting schedule was interrupted by the party needing to demonstrate to the Australian Electoral Commission that we met the new membership requirements of 1,500 members, which we talked about in episode one. Because we had only three months to meet that target, every member of the Australian Democrats, including me, put their shoulder to the wheel to get that target met. Regular listeners would have heard me going on about needing 1,500 members, but in reality, a party needs 1,650 members because the AEC gives you 10% wiggle room on the target. And to get a list of 1,650 members that you can confirm are on the electoral roll and they're not also members of other parties, you actually need more like 1,800 members. So I'm delighted to be able to tell you that we ended up with an elegant sufficiency of members for the purpose, and we were able to submit a list of 1,650 members to the AEC that we were confident in. And now we just have to wait to be audited. I'd like to take this opportunity to say hello and give big virtual hugs and kisses to the new members of the party who said that they found out about us and joined the party because of the podcast. You are all my instant forever favourites. I can't thank you enough for your support. Anyway, back to It's a Cop Out. Now, you might remember that the United Nations held its 26th Conference of the Parties, or COP26, just a few weeks ago in November, which now feels like a lifetime ago because what even is time anymore after the last 18 months? My co-host Steve Beatty watched COP26 unfold with great interest, as did our national president, Lynn Allison. And after the dust settled on the slow-motion car crash that was Australia's contribution to COP26, they put their climate policy caps on and joined me to share the many thoughts that each of them had about it. Lynn, Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands upon which we met and their elders past and present. Sovereignty never ceded. That's worth discussing. It's not just that the COP26 thing went exactly as badly as we probably predicted it would, uh, apart oh, from the whole It wasn't Emmanuel. even that good. It no. wasn't even that good. It was worse than that. <laughs> but I, I think sort of, one of the serious problems with COP26 was that they had no climate scientist actually speaking on the mm. platform. Mm. So this was a highly politicised, deeply unscientific approach to to COP26 uh, and just shows how defensive governments have become. Not, not, not all of them, of course, but Australia is certainly the worst here um, at making commitments to reduce emissions. So it was interesting. I, I had a look at the work of a scientist, who, climate scientist, um, who put out a paper recently and he said he, he pointed to some of the really big problems that there are um, like uh, 38 trillion uh, since 2015 has been poured into the fossil fuel companies uh, that um, in the US auctioning has begun on drilling rights in Alaskan waters in the Gulf of Mexico. In the UK, the Prime Minister's talking about one minute to midnight. Meanwhile, uh, 113 new licences are offered to explore offshore reserves. Uh, Germany even is developing new coal deposits and Australia is accounting for about 29% of traded coal globally in 2016. So we've become the world's largest coal exporter and near largest natural gas exporter, uh, and that's around 3.6% of global emissions. So, you know, Australia's position is appalling because it's business as usual, but we've got a problem worldwide with governments not adhering to what they promised, which was to keep emissions down to a level which would mean we would have no more than 1.5 degree increases in temperature. It seems to be a fairly consistent issue, Lynn, across the board when you look at a whole range of different governments around the world. This idea that 
they can talk about emissions reduction, talk about what they're going to be doing to cut emissions by 2030, by net zero, by 2050, and yet at the same time talk about uh, expanding coal operations, exploring new coal, uh, opening up new gas reserves, opening up new petroleum reserves. I mean, you, you, you gave a list of countries that are doing things at the moment. Australia is in the process of a public consultation about this year's petroleum export licences. And that was going on at the same time as COP26 was going on, where we were talking about how we would meet and beat our rather paltry target, but we were going to meet and beat it anyway. But at the same time, there's this common theme of not actually doing the thing that we really need to be doing, which is leaving coal in the ground, leaving gas in the ground, leaving oil in the ground, and certainly not opening up any new reserves. Indeed. But of course, we've had the the gas-led recovery. We've had uh, millions of dollars poured into uh, fuel uh, reserves and carbon sequestration, so-called technology. I mean, that's that's been around for at least 20 years, that whole idea, but it has to be far more expensive than renewable energy ever would be. It's uh, it, we can't be sure it's going to work. We do actually have to sequester some of the CO two that's in the atmosphere. Um, we shouldn't be creating more just so we can dig a hole and push it down. What we need to do is uh, is reforest uh, vast areas of uh, of the world to make up for the deforestation that's taken place over the last um, over the last decades. There, there were a couple of good initiatives that were discussed at COP26 in relation to forests. There was a pledge signed to save or you know protect 30% of global forests. I saw something recently around protecting coastal uh, zones, protecting things like uh, mangrove forests, kelp forests, those sorts of things that, again, would help. But at the same time, we're clearing a lot of land in Australia. It's better than it was, but we're still clearing a lot of land uh, in Australia. We're clearing a lot of land in places like Indonesia, a lot of land in places like Papua New Guinea, an awful lot of land in Brazil. The deadline to preserve that 30% was 2030. It's not immediate. So countries don't have to do anything today, um, which often sees them accelerate land clearing uh, ahead of the deadline rather than you know closing it off. But at least there's, there was there was some positives that were discussed and agreed as part of that global conference. I have my doubts, really. I think that population pressures in so many countries where, you know, there's poverty and there is a need for opening up land for farming. The world hasn't stopped eating and um, with more people there's going to be a greater need of agricultural land being given over or forests being given over for uh, agricultural land. So it's it's a grim forecast, I think. I, I, I feel, you know, very pessimistic about the possibility of us uh, being able to get through this and reduce emissions. I mean, the one bright light on the horizon in Australia, at least, is state governments. And what's, you know, what's hugely infuriating is that mm. the Prime Minister is now taking credit for what the state governments have done. So all their initiatives in renewable energy, if you look at New South Wales, if you look at South Australia, uh, Victoria to some degree, uh, I mean, it's the states that are doing the heavy lifting, not the federal government. Their policies are taking us backwards. There's no doubt about that. So, And, you know, (laughs) they've done their best to stop the state governments doing this. But at the same time, um, those state governments, at least in New South Wales, are, are the ones that are still opening up mining uh, for say, coal yeah. and uh, nobody's talking about stopping the export. Well, so really it's uh, we're getting double speak all the time from uh, from every level, but yeah. at least at least the state governments are doing something. I mean, the, the thing at a, at a state government level, I mean, they're, they're at least committing to reductions. That's great. And all of them are looking at ways to increase their extraction and export of coal or gas. Uh, I think 
Victoria is the exception, but Victoria is the one logging old growth forests. I, I saw reports earlier this week about another area of forest that's being cleared in Victoria. So you've got the New South Wales government that's set this target of putting in place renewable energy and phasing out coal, which is really good, and at the same time has forecasts that indicate that coal exports are going to increase over that same period. West Australia, it's gas rather than coal. In Queensland, it's coal and gas. And even the federal government's modelling that they released on their net zero by 2050, the McKinsey modelling with various cameos from, from other departments, even that shows the value of coal exports will only have decreased by 50% by 2050. Now, I'm not entirely clear on how we can be talking about having made a genuine effort to reduce carbon emissions when over that the next 30 years, we're actually looking at a fairly steady state of coal exports. All we're, all we're really doing is sending it overseas for somebody else to burn rather than burning it ourselves, which is shifting the problem, not solving it. I think that in the end it won't be the federal government that does this. It, it's no. the states who are doing much of it already. But I think we're going to see corporations, um, already we're seeing that. We're seeing business thinking maybe this is this is a risky. <laughs> maybe we should be shifting away from, despite all those banks, you know, loaning money to the fossil fuel sector, uh, what we're seeing is uh, is some activity on boards of major corporations uh, finally realising that this might be a business decision as much as anything uh, to get out of coal and and fossil fuels generally? Uh, that's one sort of you know light on the <laughs> on the horizon if you if you like. If it doesn't make sense, doesn't make business sense, then it won't happen. Um, and of course, you know, governments. Are so reliant on the the money that comes in from um, yeah. coal and gas exports. So the, the great promise that we would have this new these new industries, we would have we would expand renewable energies. We'd have we'd have solar solar farms and wind farms everywhere. We'd export our, our clean green energy to other countries all over the world. <laughs> I mean, that's just come to nothing. Instead, money is being poured into geosequestration, into finding, you know, into, into blue so-called hydrogen, um, anything but renewable, which is absurd yeah. because the, renew the renewable sector has demonstrated that you can do it. Can, there are batteries that are able, that mean we can smooth out the ups and downs. There yeah. are, um, you know, this is all effective. It's uh, it's it, it's doable. Why would we not? Why would we not put our weight behind it and drive that whole renewable sector instead it's, of wasting endless amounts of money on? It's uh, it's on cheaper. It's, it's reliable. It doesn't emit carbon. It has, like, it doesn't uh, simply shift the problem to another part of the world, and it's cheaper. The cost of renewable energy, so new new energy via renewables and battery versus new energy via coal or gas. I think it's it's about half the price now, and the price of renewables is going down, and the price of coal and gas is steady or increasing once you add on carbon capture and storage to try and reduce the emissions of production doesn't doesn't change the fact that ultimately you're going to burn the coal and the gas and and release those emissions into the air but if you look at the carbon capture and storage part the cost differential becomes three or four times instead of double like it doesn't get any cheaper by adding ccs it becomes more expensive and in two decades, three decades of commercial attempts at CCS. None of them have ever worked. None of them work at scale. They're costly. We've spent billions of dollars in Australia trying to prove that they that they work unsuccessfully. At some point, you've got to sort of draw a line through it and say, that one's not working. It's not helping, even if it did work, really solve the ultimate problem, which is to stop burning coal, oil and gas. If the policy that you're talking about doesn't ultimately result in that as a, as a simple baseline, 
does this result in less coal, oil, or gas being burned? Yes or no? Wasting that time. Geosequestration is an interesting idea, but if you think about it, what we have to do is concentrate CO2. First of all, we have to capture it. So we have to uh, put a great big pipe on the top of the, um, the, the, the stack, the flue, that where the CO2 is uh, coming out. Uh, we then have to compress that uh, into liquid form, and that takes energy. And then we have to transport it somewhere. So uh, we're currently generating power in Victoria from the Latrobe Valley. That's nowhere near a site that's suitable for uh, geosequestration where gas might have been extracted. So the whole idea that we would compress, pipe or transport in some other way this material and then use more energy to pump it underground where it may or may not stay, that cannot possibly <laughs> be, be, be lo- either logical or cost-effective, never. Why, why? I mean, it just, it, just, it just is extraordinary that anyone, it's like, like a belief system that this is going to work and a belief that someone's going to pay for it, uh, not the sector. And, uh, you know, the current government's probably keen to do that. But um, we all know that it's not going to work and it's going to be uh, a distraction, really. And it's the fossil fuel sector just trying to eke out what remains of um, its time <laughs> on this planet of uh, being able to commercialise and, and benefit financially from this sector, we have to stop. Oh, it's absolute just fantasy levels of because I mean, apart from all the the massive logistical problems that you've just laid out, there's the minor technical detail that that carbon has to stay underground in a sealed chamber forever, and compressed. it's just yeah, and, and compressed, and it's like that's not going to happen. <laughs> you know? I, I remember in, I think when, when nuclear was a, was, um, you know, sort of the big thing in, in, in my high school years and people were talking about how, well, how do we store the radioactive waste and the problem of, well, a thousand to 2000 years from now, how do we put the, you know, warning signs on the waste storage place that future generations are going to understand not to open that up. Yeah, there is yeah. currently only one storage in the world that's that's safe uh, for nuclear waste, and that's in Norway. One. Gosh. And there are millions of tons of nuclear waste around the world in inadequate sheds and <laughs> various storage um, solutions, but none of them is is permanent or secure other than this one in Norway. It costs a fortune uh, to build and uh, it's been a huge mistake. So (laughs) uh, I heard on radio just today um, somebody saying, yes, well, there are loads more um, nuclear power stations being built all over the world. It isn't true. uh, There are some being built in developing countries that have authoritarian uh, Mm. rulers and they like the, you know, the U-Butte um, idea of being all-powerful with nuclear nuclear power uh, and possibly, you know, nuclear weapons sometime down the track, uh, but it's, uh, it's not a good idea. No. Let, me, let me to come back to COP26 for a moment. We were talking about carbon capture and storage and one of the showpieces, let's call it that, of Australia's presence at COP26 was the the Australian Way stand. We had a stand and on different days the stand showcased different Australian enterprises Um, and on one of those days Santos had centre stage and was showing off their proposed Moomba carbon capture and storage operation which at a, at a conference with the sort of sole intention of reducing carbon emissions off the back of an IPCC report that showed we're in stark trouble with the analysis from the International Energy Agency just recently saying, leave it in the ground. That's what we have to do. We have to leave it all in the ground. If it's in the ground right now, leave it there. That's step number one. And Australia showcases a gas operation as part of its presence at COP26, it was phenomenally poor taste. <laughs> well, it's else. also 
highly irresponsible and embarrassing for, uh, I think, most people in this country. All of those things. In fact, you know, 70 to 80% of people when surveyed uh, mm. on the question of whether we should have greater action on climate agree. So uh, who knows who, who the Prime Minister is um, appealing to, but it's, it's, not, it's not the public. Yeah. Doesn't seem to be. No, doesn't seem to be the public. <laughs> I wonder if it's anything to do with the donations that flow from the fossil fuel sector into political parties. That's, I don't know what you're suggesting there, Lynn. That's outrageous. <laughs> it's a whole other topic, Lynn. Money in politics is a whole other, a whole other topic. It's a topic um, for another podcast. But it, it, it is a problem. I mean, and, and both Labor and the Coalition receive large amounts of money from across the fossil fuel industry. I think the analysis I saw recently is that it's, it's roughly the same amounts of money flow into each. Labor's position on new coal, new gas seems to be they're, they're in the mix and will continue to be in the mix for some time. They support mine expansions. They've supported new gas fields. Whoever the Prime Minister is come May 22nd in 2022, I'm not convinced that we're going to see a great deal of urgency at a federal level to start closing down those operations. The, and I, um, I think, uh, you know, there's there's nothing about COP26 which makes me think we should change our position on this. If, I'm, if we go back to the plan that we've put forward, it is yeah. that uh, we declare a cl- climate emergency and there's absolutely no doubt that that's what we've got. It is that we commit to reducing emissions by at least 55% by 2030 um, you know, some people are saying we need to go 60% even. So um, I think that still should be an option. You know, we've suggested breaking down the sectors uh, with the biggest emissions footprints, so electricity, yep. stationary energy, transport, agriculture. They all need to be tackled in different ways, but uh, we need to put effort into that. Uh, and, of course, the big one, the one that... Um, uh, both major parties are now too afraid to do is to is to have a price on carbon, mm. and uh, we've said thirty dollars a ton. That would be in line with uh, with most of the rest of the world actually has a price on carbon. So those that are being successful, that's how they're doing it. It's a very yep. simple way of uh, making sure that uh, emissions come down. It's absurd that we have this problem with taxes. What, what's really absurd and I think sort of came out this week is the ridiculous modelling that the government has sort of finally released to the public on how they're actually going to reach net zero, which uh, I'm sure we're, gonna, we're about to dive into in detail. But part of that modelling has an assumption that there will be some kind of price on carbon at $24 a tonne, which was the the amount that the carbon, not carbon tax, but the price on carbon that Julia Gillard introduced was $24 a tonne. So their hypocrisy knows no bounds. Indeed, indeed. We can talk about that modelling if you want to. Um, it's... <laughs> I, uh, like it's, it's a fairly big document, but it struck me that the first 30 pages or so sounded as if they'd been written by a junior staffer who was, uh, you know, sort of had a bit of media training. Uh <laughs> Honestly, it was repetitive, it was banal, it was uh, it was only when you got right into the document that there was anything at all uh, of substance and even then, you know. Um, dubious uh, substance, but substance. Dubious. Yeah, that's right. So mm. a, a, an extraordinary, I couldn't believe that anyone would write something like that. Well, they probably was, did give it to it a junior staffer. It was banal, it uh, it. It was repetitive, un- endlessly repetitive. It was a very, very poor piece of work. I was stunned, and my expectations were low going into it, but I was stunned at the fact that our net zero by 2050 plan wasn't actually any of those things. It's not actually a plan to reach net zero. We reach an 85% reduction and then there's some, you know, sort of magic fairy dust from global efforts to improve technology thrown into the mix that get us to 100%. But we're not 
it's not actually by 2050. Like that happens at some point, hopefully soon after 2050, before we become an international embarrassment type of thing. But that was only one of the scenarios that they modelled. The ones that actually get us to net zero were almost chosen for their contrasting the plan in a favourable light rather than being in any way realistic. The assumptions that they were based on seemed fanciful. It was amateurish, to put it mildly, or it was simply a document to back up the politics, which is almost as bad. I I think you put on something there, Steve, because I I feel like the modelling was done to to back up, like to to, um, back up the political argument that they're making as opposed to having had the modelling done, looked at the evidence and built a political argument based on that. Because, again, this is a government that is all about the announcement and, and you know, all about, you know, uh, the spin and, and not actually having anything, you know, they, they have, you know, this is the second election that they'll be going into where they have no concrete policies. And uh, this this promise that we'll have t- the technology will be the answer to all of this. I just just found the um, the document. I think uh, is the basis of this technology plan, and it is advanced communications, five G and six G, artificial intelligence, cyber security technologies, genomics, uh, genetic engineering, novel antibiotics antivirals and vaccines, low emissions, alternative fuels, quantum technologies and autonomous vehicles, drones, swarming and collaborative robotics. Now, none of that has anything to do with with, uh, reducing emissions. And that's the technological footprint, (laughs) apparently, we're heading towards. How is AI supposed to reduce emissions if, if anything it's going uh-huh. to increase it because because of the computing power that you need but th- th- there seems like like someone's just got like a grab bat like they've gone to some kind of like you know futurist tech blog and, and picked out all the key words and gone see magic yeah exactly so as long as it's technology i mean you know there's technology and technology but what they've chosen has got nothing to do with climate well the, the crazy thing as i pointed out elsewhere recently is that our scientists have spent decades developing exactly the technology that we need to address climate change, which is solar cells and the panels that we make from them. And Australia is a world leader in solar cell technology. We're a world leader in battery technology that you can pair with solar cells to provide stable, reliable energy into the grid. Scientists have developed wind turbines as well to, you know, like transfer wind energy. I, I mean, that's all technology. We've got them. We've Steve, spent 30 Steve, years I'm going developing. to disagree with you there, though. Uh, we, we did start the technology, but we didn't... We didn't develop it. Oh, so, sure. Um, <laughs> there was a commercial opportunity that we <laughs> Let me lost tell there. You, I've, I've been talking with um, the chap who put the solar panels on my roof um, uh, hmm. six months ago uh, and told him that my neighbours were keen to talk with him now and he said, uh, it's not a good idea. Solar panels have gone up by 30% in cost and that's because there's uh, there's very little availability. <laughs> Right. The solar panels that are supposed that 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 up until now have been coming out of China are not available in the way they were before. We don't make them at all in this country, even though we we establish the technology. We are not manufacturing them here. All of the technology's gone offshore. Mm. So that whole idea that we're you know straight at the smart country, I don't think so. Well, no, we've yeah you know, this government in particular. For all that they're carrying on about how technology will save us, they've spent the last decade defunding the CSIRO and all of the brilliant scientists who were supposed to go ahead and invent those technologies and do the research and development and, you know, build them up to commercial level. Like, like all, all of the supports that would have then helped build that technology to commercial sustainability have mm. been cut. Our university sector, for example. Yeah, and let's not get started on universities. <laughs> No, but it's a good it's a good example of where the rhetoric and the actions don't line up at mm. all. But if we've if we're going to ignore decades of development in these technologies that are clean that address the climate uh, challenge, and we won't deploy them, why like why would the next technology, whether it's 
AI or quantum computing or genomics that's going to solve the, the climate crisis based on, you know, a 20-year R&D roadmap. Like, what makes us think that we're going to deploy those technologies with any greater backing than the ones that are sitting there as political footballs today? Dead. Right. Right, right. <laughs> are we done? <laughs> no. No. No, let's let's talk about the government's announcement of its EV policy because they they yeah, essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. they came back from COP twenty six and essentially we we were treated to the prime minister doing a little bit of pre campaign practice, let's call it that. But he went out essentially and he campaigned for a couple of weeks, and we we were treated to the government's electric vehicle policy as a result. And after a long time in development and after going to the 2019 election, absolutely hammering Labor's uh, EV policy at the time, it was going to end the weekend. It was too weak. It didn't have any range. It was going to ruin the weekend. Um, you wouldn't be able to take it camping, like all of yeah. those sorts of things. Now the government has released its own EV policy and it's awful. All lovely. it is... Uh, is a bucket of money which is to be spent on infrastructure. So this is uh, charging stations, and the idea is that the in, that industry, private companies, will will partner in some way with the government on establishing them. The big problem right now is is uh, it is actually not so much charges, although they are needed, especially in rural areas. Uh, but the problem is they're not profitable because we've said, oh, this is a private sector business. Uh, private sector needs, you know, we'll give them a bit of encouragement, but it's the private sector that will provide. But, of course, <laughs> it's chicken and egg. So yeah. if you don't have very many EVs on the road, people are not funding the service um, that that is needed. So we, we, we absolutely need some intervention into the sector and in fact the government encouraging more players into the into the scene is going to make it more difficult for the ones that are already there trying to make a quid yeah. so <laughs> this is this is the conundrum and <clears throat> if you don't encourage people to buy um, new electric vehicles and I I discovered that I've always kind of understood that you need to have a CO2 emission performance standards of um, of manufacture. But yep. I hadn't quite understood why that was. So I'll go into this if you think this is useful. I do. Yeah. So the question is why EVs are so expensive to buy in Australia compared with other countries. And Peter Martin from the ANU uh, wrote a piece on this um, just the other day. Uh, and it is around standards. He says that Europe has imposed CO2 emission performance standards for car manufacturers and that that performance is calculated by averaging the emissions of all cars in their fleet. Now, that covers uh, not just Europe, but Canada, China, India, Japan, Korea, Mexico, and the United States. Not exactly the same as Europe and maybe not quite so tight, but they all have similar standards. And that's four out of every five cars in the world. So um, the standards mean that it's hard for manufacturers to reach those standards unless they make and sell electric vehicles to bring the average emissions down. So what that's meant is that uh, there's been a 12% reduction in emissions in Europe as a result of those standards, and they will be toughening the standards in 2025 and again in 2030. Since last year, each manufacturer's cars uh, are limited to an average emission of emission level of 95 grams of carbon dioxide emitted per kilometer, and vans an average of 147 grams emitted per kilometer. And then it's up to the companies as to how they achieve that. They could do it by selling more low emissions and fewer emissions uh, cars, uh, conventionally conventionally uh, powered cars, or they could do it by selling more electric cars. 
And uh, if they haven't sold enough cars to get their brand emission ceiling down, they have to discount them in order to get the average down. So that's why they're cheap in those countries. Yeah, well. So it's a very clever mechanism and so easy to do. It's all you need to do uh, because um, – instead of instead of pouring money into new charges around the place hmm. if we were if we were to build the fleet and the f- very first thing that should happen is that government fleets should be evs yeah. uh, and there's no reason why that can't happen pretty much Straight immediately away. yeah uh, and australia only the only <laughs> this is an interesting story the only vehicle standards in australia are fuel standards so that's the level of sulfur dioxide and particulates in petrol and diesel mm-hmm. and um, and stickers on new cars that quote the vehicle fuel economy and emissions per kilometer now that's actually my doing <laughs> But it was 15 years ago. Um, what I did was negotiate both those me- measures, and mm. uh, but nothing has changed in the meantime. Right. So um, the reason our EVs are way more expensive than other countries is because uh, we have no emission standards. Stickers, yes, but standards, no. Yeah. And look, on, on top of that, I mean, we've got countries like France that are rolling out significant rebates uh, or subsidies for people who wish to buy electric vehicles. I, I thought I saw the other day that it was about 13,000 uh, euros as a subsidy. I think in Japan, it's the equivalent of about $10,000 US that is taken off the price. So, it, you know, you've got a couple of mechanisms there that can be used to reduce the cost the purchase cost of these vehicles, and we have none of it here, like none. I'm not so sure about that, Steve. I I do think a mechanism like this is much more effective. Uh, It's a lot of money to be invested in individuals' private property, frankly. Yeah, and that's a a good point, yeah. So I I just think the money is far better used in other other ways Uh, and it's it's such a simple mechanism, really. Mm. And, and of course, it's simple for Australia to adopt as well because we don't manufacture vehicles anymore in Australia. So we're we're not talking about any job losses. We can simply do this. Yeah, It would give Uh, us access to a a broader range of models. At the moment, we're missing out on models that are prioritised to those international markets instead. Um, It would be worth them sending them here because they would have to meet that requirement domestically as well. So, you know, it, it would actually improve the range of vehicles that we have on offer. We are getting more vehicles coming to Australia, but, um, you know, if I can quote the the head of Volkswagen who said recently, uh, every six months we do an update with a board meeting on uh, electric vehicle environments in Australia. They are sitting in waiting for some something to change, you know, but nothing ever changes. I guess uh, the way I would put it is, is that it's embarrassing. So this is the head of Volkswagen <laughs> saying this about Australia. And, in fact, countries are dumping vehicles in Australia and they're, they're less fuel efficient. They are more damaging in terms of emissions. So we have the worst record in the OECD for NOx emissions, mm-hmm. 7.5 times more than the European average. Wow. So we're we're not only churning out more emissions than we should be, but we're also damaging people's health. So yeah. around 1,700 people die every year in Australia directly because of emissions from vehicles. Wow. So that's a huge amount. Uh, some say it's even higher than that. It can be quite hard quite to measure possibly, this, yeah. but that's the very least one of the downsides of um, burning fossil fuels in engines. Yeah. So uh, if you have a you have an electric vehicle, um, it's possible to recharge using sunlight. That's what I do. I have a, I have a Nissan Leaf and uh, what I do is uh, plug it into an ordinary PowerPoint during the day when the sun is out and I charge my car for absolutely nothing and on the road it emits nothing. It's quiet. It's uh, it's yeah. beautiful to drive. It has very very fast um, acceleration. It's um, it's all the things that we need in a car. The difference is that it's powered by the sun as opposed to fossil fuels. 
And I think um, the, the two big risks here, one is that we're going to end up like Cuba in that we'll have all of these ancient cars that run on fossil fuels. And because I mean, I think after 2025, most of the major car manufacturers have pledged to just phase out internal combustion engine vehicles altogether. And so we'll sort of be this last holdout driving our fossil fuel driven cars into sort of the, the 2030s. And eventually we'll be forced to take up electric vehicles because there'll simply just be nothing left to buy. But then we won't be getting all the advances in electric vehicles until, you know, another 10 or 15 years from now. And also, I think, Lynn, uh, getting back to your point about the, the people who whose, whose lives are sort of foreshortened by burning fossil fuels and vehicles, we don't know how many people in the country, uh, you know, how their health and, and um, their, their lifespans might be artificially shortened because of, of 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 emissions, and my brother has has asthma, and he's fine now. But I think as a kid, I, I you know I sort of look back and wonder how many of his asthma attacks were driven by pollution and poor well, air quality and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, studies have been done over time that absolutely demonstrate that there's a there's a big risk of particularly for children, of being within a distance of a major freeway, for instance. So they can measure that pretty precisely. Um, Where you live makes a difference to your health and one of those uh, factors is uh, how close you are to emissions from vehicles. So diesel, uh, diesel has uh, 15 times more sulphur in Australia in it than other countries around the world. We have no limits on diesel, which is why we now have so many four-wheel drives that run on diesel and they're pumping out particulates and they're pumping out all the noxious um, substances that come with diesel fuel. It's, It's shameful, really. You know, Australia's become an SUV capital of the world, I think, and uh, we've got the worst vehicles. Like in so many areas of our climate policy, eventually we will be forced to act simply because other countries put in place measures to reduce their own emissions. So as you as you mentioned, Elena, there will be an end in Europe and in Japan and in America to the manufacture and sale of internal combustion engines at some point in the next 10 to 15 years. They'll stop doing it. We won't be able to buy them anymore. Maybe that will be the impetus for us to start building them again in Australia just so we can keep burning petrol maybe. But, you know, like those those decisions will be made by those international markets. We don't have a domestic manufacturing capacity for vehicles which means we're at the beck and call of what happens in those international markets. The same goes for our coal. We've sat there and said for the next 30 years, we're still going to be exporting coal to international uh, countries. And those international countries have all said, no, you won't. We're shutting down our coal-fired power stations as quickly as we can. In some countries, that's going to be a little longer than it was. But even in a country like Japan, we sorry, in, in China, We export a lot of our coal to China. China gets most of its coal out of of the ground itself. Most of its coal is produced domestically. We, We are the biggest exporter or importer into China. But even so, it's it's a it's a, a small portion of what they need. And it'll be one of the first bits that they get rid of as they wind down their domestic coal use. The exports from places like Australia will be the things that they they get rid of soon rather than last. So if China's going to close down all its coal-fired power by 2050, 2060, Australia won't be selling them coal by maybe 2030, 2035 kind of thing. India's heading down the same path. We, we won't have customers. As much as mm. we might like to dig it out of the ground, we'll be sitting at a dock somewhere uh, or at a port somewhere because we won't have any customers to to sell it to. And I think you're right. And I think something that I think gets overlooked a bit is the fact that banks are now starting to refuse to insure these projects. And banks are highly conservative. They are highly risk averse. But it's taken a long time for them to, to say, actually, no, this is a bad investment and we can't insure you. We can't fund you. And granted, not all banks yet, but a lot of banks are starting to look at it purely from an economic and risk management sort of perspective and say, 
no, we won't lend you the money to build this coal mine because we're not going to get our money back if the, the environment, uh, the investment environment is too fraught right now. And you've seen the Deputy Prime Minister and other members of the government rail against the banks for this and then insist that the taxpayer will now fund, you know, provide funding for those projects instead. And this from a government that insists on, oh, let the market decide. Let's get government out of these sort of things, except where fossil fuels are concerned. Indeed. Indeed. And, you, you know, you would think that we would be very interested in getting out of oil in particular. You know, there's an argument for um, for the economic benefits of selling coal and gas, but there there is no such benefit in in promoting cars that that uh, run on diesel and petrol because we don't we don't dig them out of the ground. We we pay through the nose to buy. Them. To buy those um, those substances, all that money gets poured into the Middle East, and instead of us using the sun to um, power vehicles, I mean, it makes no sense at all. The the argument in favour of electric vehicles in a country like Australia should be such a no brainer. It should be a complete no brainer, and yet here we are with. An election coming and the government has put out an EV strategy with $500 million in funding. And of that, I think maybe only half of that was new funding. The other half was already existed. Um, the government's very good at recycling uh, absolutely. promises. Absolutely. Yes. More, uh, probably uh, better at actually recycling promises than delivering on any of them, I would, I would argue. But, I mean, it's... It's actually a pittance when you think about, you know, Australia, um, we, we buy a, roughly a million new passenger vehicles a year. The funding that was announced for infrastructure might deliver 50,000 charging points in private homes. It wasn't public infrastructure. The, the majority of it was going towards private infrastructure. It was a drop in the ocean of what we needed. It was... Uh, some nice talking points, some nice photos. And I noticed that the photos were in front of a hydrogen-powered vehicle rather than an electric-powered vehicle that, you it's know, why, why, why quibble. Yeah, it was, it, it's a, an, an amazingly underwhelming piece of policy around something that should be so easy to do. And I think it's important to point out that this is the very same government that let the domestic car industry die. You know, and, and don't just let it die, encourage the car makers to leave. And I, I sort of look, and this is one of those sort of massive missed opportunities that a, that a government with actual vision might have actually, uh, you know, done something about where because the domestic car market was small, we had very small markets that we were exporting to, like a visionary government possibly might have sort of, you know, read the wind on the emergence of electric vehicles and helped those car manufacturers and factories maybe retool to start building electric vehicles here. And if we'd gotten that much, if we'd been early adopters of that level back in 2013, 14, 15, maybe we would have a thriving car market here where we are exporting worldwide Australian-built electric vehicles. I can imagine having a Tesla plant here. Yes, who knows. Uh, There were a couple of attempts at uh, setting up EV manufacture. I think even in the old Ford factory in Geelong, this was talked about at the very least. But, you uh, you know, it's hard to to know uh, what needed to be done to make that happen other Mm -hmm. than to to step in with standards, you know, Mm -hmm. really comes back to that every time it's it's like a carbon tax and standards on vehicles that's really all you need to do to get it right oh yeah yeah and there would have been sort of you know massive government investment massive sort of you know building that sort of legislative infrastructure around it to put that sort of supporting framework in place as well. Yeah. I mean, the great irony was that, you know, that they spat the dummy and said, oh, well, you know, uh, Ford and Toyota and I think Mitsubishi and Holden can all take off now because we're done subsidising these jobs. Mm. And I was like, well, helping those factories refit to build electric vehicles and putting the, the legislative infrastructure in place to support an emerging electric vehicle market would actually have been an investment in subsidising those jobs as opposed to funding the jobs for, for no purpose because because it wasn't just the immediate jobs on the factory floor that went. 
it was all the um, supporting industries, you know, for car part manufacturers and others that got impacted. And I think a lot of the um, incredible car designers and, and, and sort of knowledge workers in the car industry ended up going overseas. And I think a lot of people, those people got picked up by Tesla. Yeah, indeed. So. I mean, you know, the the vehicle industry was subsidised hugely um, for decades. So uh, I don't know. I I think I'm in the camp that says <laughs> this this wasn't a, wasn't the right thing to do without having some without having a, a gain in some way. And mm. and that should, again, that should have been um, emission standards. It should have instead of building huge cars. Um, we should have been making smaller cars, more efficient cars, better cars. <laughs> uh, so, so there were no strings attached ever. It was always Holden or Ford in another country that was pulling the strings, and they did yes. that on the basis of what America needed more than anything else. So, um, I have some some sympathy for saying let's let's end the <laughs> the subsidisation, but you know, bring bring in place something that's more suited for the future. And oh we've, yes, we've known for a very long time that we need to get away from fossil fuel vehicles. And uh, I recall almost twenty years ago having a conversation with a, a manufacturing body that was making oh, what are they called? Motorbikes, <laughs> motorbikes, motorbikes, electric motorbikes. They were they were they were manufacturing, and I actually had a ride on one. It was fantastic, just amazing. Um, but that just disappeared. Nothing eventuated from it, and that's because they was a bit more expensive than most most motorbikes, and so uh, they hardly motorbikes hardly used any fuel anyway. So there wasn't a cost imperative there to uh, to go electric because you would save money. Uh, that that didn't work, and so it folded. So that's yeah. Uh, I think you have to have. It has to be driven. It has to be. It has to be thought through. It has to be about the future. It has to be where are we going with this? It feels like Australia is a very unsophisticated country when it You're comes right. to this innovation. When it comes to jobs and industries in this country, I think we can look to so many other countries that have done this more successfully. Germany, mm. for instance, has a very very sophisticated economy with uh, manufacturing. They still make things that uh, get traded, exported, <laughs> it's uh, it's just extraordinary that Australia's pretty much given up on that. Oh, you know, you're right. And, and I think um, it's really easy to overlook the fact that government is necessary to, you know, provide the scaffolding to help these innovations grow and become commercially competitive. There's this whole thing of, oh, we need to step away and let the market decide and let business do it. There's, there's, sort of, there's like a long runway of innovation and development that governments need to be there for to get these things off the ground to create those markets well they have they and have to they have to develop the policies and the incentives exactly they have to, they have to make the rules which make mm. it make it necessary to com, to comply that's that's the that's obvious now that we can see which countries are successful in bringing emissions down whatever is the ob- objective it is that governments set the standards, they they establish the policy. It doesn't necessarily mean they need to pay for everything. It just means mm-hmm. they it just means they know where they're going and they've got a logical reason to do it. Oh yes, yeah, and because I, I guess what I'm getting is that the this government in particular, but even the opposition to a degree, seem to be having a discussion around sort of markets and innovation and things. Where government is absent, like it's it's not up to government to you know, like you said, provide the legislative uh, frameworks and policy, and you know, help put the regulations in place that will have uh, enable a thriving and mature market to emerge. It, 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 this, it seems to be this massive disconnect between what the private sector is supposed to be doing and what government's supposed to be doing, and. We seem to be overlooking the fact that government enables the private sector, in, 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 again, not just financially, but in terms of regulation and legislation and policy and, you know, providing that direction for the private sector to then innovate and, and, and explore. I mean, you know, we've had, I don't know how many royal commissions that have demonstrated what goes wrong when government steps away from that role and just leaves the market to, to do its thing. 
になります。Thank you as always to Lynn and Steve for their time and their insights. One of my favorite things about talking to Lynn is having her casually mention in passing that she was responsible for some aspect of my life that I just take for granted. Next time you go to your fridge or use your washing machine, have a look at the energy efficiency star rating stickers on your appliances. That's another Lynn Allison special. It's also sometimes depressing to listen to Lynn talking about how she was negotiating legislation on issues, particularly on climate and the environment, which is her focus when she was in Parliament, and then realise that we've not actually progressed any further on these issues more than a decade later. It reveals how our politics, and therefore our country, has suffered for the lack of a party committed to just quietly getting stuff done for the good of the nation. And how none of the parties currently in Parliament have managed to fill the Democrat-shaped void in the Senate. It's why meeting the sudden and arbitrary membership target legislated in October has been so significant, because it was yet another hurdle placed in front of the Democrats as we move ever closer to returning to federal Parliament. And it was a hurdle that we overcame convincingly. The last hurdle that we have to overcome now is the next federal election. I am so looking forward to seeing at least one Australian Democrat return to federal parliament in 2022. The momentum is building. I've put a link to our decade of climate action, sustainable agriculture, and waste and recycling policy platforms in the show notes, as they're all very relevant to our COP26 discussion, as well as a link to the article from Peter Martin on how imposing CO2 emission standards would help create a legislative environment that would drive down the cost of EVs in Australia. There is a photo of Lynn on the electric motorbike she test drove when she was in Parliament, but I've not been able to get my hands on it just yet. But when I do, I'll be sure to share it with you. On December 11th, 2021, our climate action campaign lead Jack Peed presented an evidence-based response to COP26, which was a free online event that some of our listeners might have attended. If you missed out, we did record it, and just for you, our listeners. I've put a link to it in the show notes if you're interested. Enjoy. One of the best things about meeting and beating our membership targets is that I no longer have to urgently encourage you to join the party at the end of the podcast. But if you want to support us as we head into the next election, you are still most welcome to join or donate to us so we can fund our election campaign. We receive no taxpayer or corporate funding. We run entirely on donations from our members and the love and dedication of our volunteers. So even the smallest donation helps, and donations up to the value of fourteen hundred dollars in a single financial year are fully tax deductible. If you want to become a forever favourite, you can set up a recurring monthly donation at our website, which I've also put into the show notes. It's an unavoidable reality that elections cost money. Just as an example, it costs two thousand dollars per candidate to register with the AEC to run in a federal election. We've committed to running at least two candidates for the Senate in every state and territory in the country, so we need thirty-two thousand dollars just to register our candidates to run. If we end up running candidates in lower house seats to support the Senate teams, that's two thousand dollars per seat on top of that thirty-two thousand dollar base. Just to be eligible to take part in the election, that doesn't include paying for things like call flutes, how to vote cards, T-shirts and hats for volunteers to wear at polling booths on election day, and things like advertising to raise our profile and let people know we're back and we're contenders. Right now, the single greatest thing you can do to help us is to donate to us, and if you can, set up a recurring donation. I know times are tough for a lot of people right now, but every dollar helps. If you want an Australian Democrat in the Senate in 2022, if you want to be able to vote for us to make that happen, we need your financial support as well as your vote. Thank you so much for listening and for all your support in 2021. We look forward to bringing you more podcast episodes and more live online events in 2022. This year has been extraordinarily difficult for so many of us in so many different ways. So, we wish everyone a safe and really enjoyable holiday season as the year comes to a close. Look after yourselves and your loved ones, 
and we'll see you next year. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.